When everything feels upside down, culture is what holds us together. It's the songs that soundtrack our morning commute and our quarantine living room dance parties, or that beckon us down to the bar to find someone to make out with. It's the shows we binge and the books we read to wind down after a hard day at work, and it's the meals we cook to remember our grandmothers. It's an excuse to get out of the house and go sit in a dark theater on a Saturday afternoon, and a litmus test for finding other people who see the world like we do. It's the thing that gives our lives meaning when it's hard to make sense of anything at all. I'm Andrea Dominic. And I'm Emily Friedlander. Welcome to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about the wild west of culture and culture journalism in the year 2020. Think of it as your guide to understanding the arts, technology, and a shifting labor landscape through the lens of culture reporting. Hosted by us, two freelance journalists from opposite sides of the country. Welcome to The Culture Journalist. This is our fourth episode, which means that we've been doing this for a month now. This is our first time doing something like this. It's been really cool to hear feedback from a lot of people, friends and colleagues from all over the place. If you like what we're doing, you can actually sign up on Substack to get each episode as it comes out sent straight to your inbox. If you really like what we're doing and you are able to help support this project, um, you can also subscribe for a small monthly fee or for $50 a year. And if you can't do that, another way you can help us out is by going to Apple Podcasts and just leaving us a rating and subscribing. Anywhere that you can leave a starred rating, any kind of comment. We're not going to tell you what kind of feedback to leave, but good feedback is always welcome. And I know it feels small, but those little things actually do help us uh, get more visibility on these platforms. So we appreciate all of your support, guys. So today on our episode, we're going to get local. It's specifically talking about local media and independent journalism and our relationship with local news. We've been talking on this show a little bit about the state of journalism in general and how it's in free fall. There's a lot of innovation. There's also a lot of grief. But we think local media and local alternative media is also something that is increasingly overlooked and probably struggling even more so than larger publications. For example, there is a 2019 Pew Research Center article that cited that 1,300 communities across the country have completely lost local news coverage, like they are news deserts, which is very scary to think about. Another Brookings Institute report from 2019 found that over 65 million Americans live in counties with only one local newspaper or none at all. I mean, think about that. Like, what does that mean, Emily? Well, Andrea, you also found a map, right, that visualizes the growth of news deserts uh, between like 2004 and 2019. Yeah, it's a, a little gif, I guess, that was part of that Brookings Institute report, but it goes from having 
a small smattering of red dots across the country to just like giant chunks. It's 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 very striking, and we'll also have that embedded um, or linked out on our Substack post about this if you want to check it out and look more into it. You know, when there's a news desert, that what what these growing red bubbles are showing is that that this is a lack of local enfranchisement, a lack of local information and empowerment and connection to what's happening to these communities and a reliance on, you know, narratives that are being brought to you by organizations that are not directly connected to the community of which you're part. Yeah, it's really crazy. I recently moved from New York City to a smaller city on the East Coast. And, you know, there is a local, there is like an alt-weekly there are a few local newspapers. There's an, you know, an NPR station. But I feel like through this pandemic, I know much, much more about what's going on in New York, where I came from, than I do about, you know, where I live every day. I see, you know, there's select articles reporting on, you know, coronavirus statistics in the area. But I have to like drive around the town to like get a full sense of how things have changed. It's really, really strange. And I just get this feeling that there are so many stories that I'm missing. Mm, that's really interesting. What's been your relationship with local and alt media in general, um, you know, throughout your career and just your life? Probably the biggest thing for me was growing up in New York City and reading The Village Voice. Mm-hmm. Like I grew up in Brooklyn, but I went to school in Manhattan and I would several times a week go down to specifically to the East Village because that was sort of the counterculture epicenter of the city at the time. And I would go and like the first thing I would do would be open one of those like red boxes to get a copy of the Village Voice and see, you know, what the upcoming shows were you know, what music was coming out, etc. And that was, it was cool to have to go to a physical place to get that information. I just wanted to suck up as much counterculture as I could. So it was kind of my guide to navigating this like mysterious world that I was going to whenever I took the train down to the village. Mm. What about you? What's your relationship to local news? Yeah, I mean, growing up in Los Angeles, um, we had the LA Weekly, which, you know, has since a few years ago underwent a big change in ownership and is not the same tone or vibe or staff that it used to be, but I had a similar relationship with it. I grew up reading both the LA Weekly and the LA Times, you know, but the LA Weekly specifically was sort of just this window into the city that I was growing up in, and it really kind of gave me a roadmap for understanding its politics, its culture, its food, its music, its art, and just its people. You know, it had a real voice. And I mean, I remember growing up and wanting, you know, (laughs) wanting like one day to be editor-in-chief. Like, I just love this publication so much. And then as I got older and I embarked on, you know, my culture journalism career became a real launch pad for me. I started I guess I started my music journalism career in earnest, uh, reporting on music for them as a freelancer about 10 years ago. And, you know, that at that time, like Jonathan Gold, the Pulitzer winning mm. food critic was still there. And, 
a bunch of other journalists I loved and respected. And, you know, back in the day, my father had even had a column for them. So it felt it felt like like being a part of a cultural legacy of my city, like just even being like in the same room as these people. And it was inspiring. And I learned a lot there. And it's also where I met some of my best friends and colleagues and people I continue to work with today, such as today's guest. He doesn't need any introduction, but it is culture journalist extraordinaire Jeff Weiss. He is co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Land, that is capital L-A, lowercase n-d, which is a relatively new quarterly alternative culture magazine that was founded from the ashes of L.A. Weekly. Jeff also is founder of the POW rap blog slash website and record label and is a regular contributor to the Washington Post, Los Angeles Magazine, and The Ringer, and a bunch of other awesome publications. Jeff, we are so stoked to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. I'm honored to be here. How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Glad it's Friday. So we brought Jeff on the show today to talk about um, his career, his relationship with local and alternative media, and what it's like to continue hustling as an independent journalist for your city today, as well as like the trials and tribulations of launching your own DIY publication today. So for those of us who don't live in Los Angeles, can you tell us the land origin story and how it ties to this idea of the collapse of the Alt Weekly? Basically, the land is, I should say, you know, it's an alternative culture print publication. Um, We've had two issues now. We're about to have a third, uh, a smaller issue coming out uh, for the election. And the tagline is by locals for locals. Basically, LA Weekly, which was the publication that you know, I loved growing up and had written for, for at the time, a, a decade, uh, got bought by Trumpist Nazis. And uh, of course, that's a little bit of a, a short answer of it. You know, I've been at Daily Weekly for a decade, which as Andrew mentioned, is uh, where we met, you know, just working, covering music. And I you know, covered a little, I covered the Lakers for a few years. I covered, uh, you know, random culture stuff here and there, the occasional political story, but but mostly music. And Around the beginning of 2017, we got word um, that the LA Weekly was for sale, right? And it was owned by uh, Voice Media, which was a former New Times Media, which were, to be fair, like a bunch of kind of ghouls themselves out of Arizona, right? They owned about six to eight alternative weeklies. Basically, everyone at the LA Weekly found out that the paper was for sale via a blog post that the owners had put on site. Like, who wants to buy us? Which, of course, should have been like, sign one. This is going to be a, a epic disaster. Mm. then flash forward six months later it was everyone was assured it was going to be like a normal responsible buyer six months later it was discovered that for the low low cost or maybe eight months later the low low cost of which i discovered you know in the course of my uh you know clandestine reporting that this group of about a half a dozen mystery owners we only knew one of them a man named brian kaye i'll I'll get to him in a second had purchased the paper for $1.2 million, which is insane. You can't even buy a condo on the west side of LA at this point for that kind of money, right? But somehow for $1.2 million, they got the keys to basically Los Angeles's most vaunted progressive you know, publication for the last 40 years, right? That's like the budget of like a small staff Completely. payroll for a year. Completely. Like it's insane. They basically bought it. We didn't know anything about it. Uh, who these people were. And at first it was a total mystery. And Andrea, I believe you were uh, kind of a part of the uh, the squad of crack journalists where we were getting to the bottom of who their their mystery identity was. Who these... Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So we first discovered Brian Kaye was sort of the uh, the front man of the organization, and uh, I don't know how they thought we couldn't figure it out because again, <laughs> journalists are going to journalism. And it turned out he was the vice president of the Claremont Institute, which is this like right wing fascist think tank that kind of launders the deleterious ideas of the far right and tries to put this intellectual burnish on them. Right. So he had been the vice president. Mm-hmm. This is an organization that had been called Trump's Brains. Um, and this was one of the signs. You know, it was 2017. Trump had been in office like 10 months. And it turned out that all of these investors uh, had ties to, you know, big right wing donors. Why would they want to purchase a publication like the LA Weekly? There's a variety of speculation. I, I'm a big believer in the usually it's not one thing. You know, everyone wants to point to the one kind of smoking gun, but it's usually like a, a conglomeration of different things. One, I think, was, of course, political, right? You have this you have this left-wing publication. You know, it's not even about, okay, like, the LA Weekly, like, it's not going to change the, the game on, like, Trump reporting. Like, that, that, but, like, in local elections, you know, say, like, a Jackie Lacey versus a George Gascone, the LA Weekly could throw a lot of, you know, a lot of muscle behind it. You know, who your, who your House of Representative person is, you know, that the, uh, uh, alternative weekly at the local level can sway the race. Also, there's so many assembly races, you know, California state, le- California state senators, uh, city council people. You know, your average Angelino is really in the dark about most of these things. And, you know, I think mm-hmm. that's the way that a lot of these right-wing people want it. You know, the more ignorance, the better they can exploit it. I'll be the, one of the first people to admit it. Like, you know, I've always been fascinated by national politics, even state politics, like in terms of, you know, who the governor is, who the, who the senators are. At the local level, I've been pretty in the dark most of my life, you know, and I think that's a pretty common thing for a lot of Angelinos. So, you know, there was, a, I think, a stated thing in the Claremont uh, Review Manifesto or whatever, where it's like one of the things was to infiltrate and destroy kind of liberal institutions. You know, it was like the quiet part was definitely said out loud. I also think Brian Kaye just thought it'd be great to have like a little toy to race around town and like have people think he's this respectable, you know, intellectual, you know, it should also be said he was the, uh, the previous op-ed editor at uh, the Orange County Register, which was long famed for being California's most prominent libertarian newspaper, obviously Orange County, the place where the Lincoln Club comes from, the John Birch Society comes from. They were behind Richard Nixon being the president. You know, that was his original kind mm-hmm. of, it's a long tried tradition of kind of conservative reprobates destroying America. But long story short, I, and myself and uh, a lot of my colleagues, basically, I got irate. I was like, this this can't happen. Of course it did. But, you know, I think that's been the last, ex- the experience of our last four years in America, right? Like, all these mm-hmm. things that can't happen have happened. LA Weekly to me was one of those things. I mean, it's like, I like to joke, it's not real, but it's like the LA Weekly dying radicalized me, you know? And and like, mm. I, you know, went off on like a crazy Twitter rampage, trying to take a stand and, and, and kind of show them that like, you know what, you can't do this. And if you try to do this, you know, we're going to expose you and you're not going to be able to operate in the way that you wanted to. Because I, and I, I, and I forgive me, I, I should mention, I'm, I'm totally being remiss, the moment they took control of the paper, they fired everyone. No exit interviews. They did it via email. They fired the publisher. They fired every editorial staffer but one. And and there wasn't even a, a magazine for you know a, for a week. There you know there was nothing online. Just like complete chaos. And you know of course they didn't have a politics section. No politics whatsoever. They've actually gone on to do some like kind of blue lives matter kind of Instagram posts and defending the police all the time. And it's it's everything that an alternative weekly should not be. And 
fast forward, I lead this boycott, you know, along with other people for four months. Um, we do a really good job. We shut down some of their events because they were trying to exploit the legacy of the LA Weekly, right? It had built up so much goodwill for 40 years. Everyone loved the LA Weekly. We shut down two of their events via our boycott. It, it kind of crippled one of their main revenue sources. And uh, we made it very hard for them to operate in any kind of meaningful way. They still exist, but it's a real attenuated shadow of what they were. Basically, and I believe Andrew was there, we had a series of meetings kind of just, you know, but it was like one of the first times that like a bunch of people in Los Angeles kind of met because it's not like New York where like everyone's having drinks after work. And so we had all these meetings and we got all these people together and like a real like, uh, you know, it felt like an esprit de corps. And we're just like, what should we do? And at one of the meetings, we had the idea of to do a people's issue because it was kind of a riff on the LA Weekly's people issue that they would do every year where they would highlight prominent members of Los Angeles and, uh, you know, people just doing whatever in the community or artists, sports figures, politicians, you name it. And then it basically became, okay, well, why, why just do a people's issue? It's derivative anyways. It's like, let's just do our own thing. Fuck it. I remember being at one of those meetings and I specifically remember the point in conversation that came up. We were saying, okay, so this, we've been doing this boycott thing for a second, but instead of focusing on, you know, what, what we don't want, how can we turn this into an opportunity to create what we do want? That moment stuck with me because I I remember that was sort of, I think maybe like the, the inception of the land and when, when, this really turned from a mo- uh, feeling like it was a way for us to get our frustration and anger at the entire local media landscape out yeah. to seeing the flip side of, well, are we just gonna are we just gonna sit around and, and obliterate it, or are we gonna Definitely. try to fill it? Yeah, it, and and it should be said at the time. This is you know at this point we're in the twenty eighteen. The the landscape of LA media, especially in LA independent media, was cataclysmic. At one point, there had been three all weeklies. You know, even when I first started my career as a journalist, uh, by that point, there were now none. The LA Times was going through its kind of chaos with Michael Farrow exacting his rune and all that sort of thing. And it looked like there was at one point, it looked like there might not be an LA Times just in any kind of meaningful way, which would have been mm-hmm. catastrophic for the city. LA Magazine had dealt with its share of layoffs. You know. Um, I mean, it was really bad. Uh, there was, I mean, and it was looking like, you know, LAist had just been shut down. I mean, it was really looking for a minute, like there might not be a media to speak of in the second largest city in America, which is insane, right? So, but, you know, as Andrea says, you know, we wanted to fix the flaws of the previous iteration of LA Weekly because, you know, maybe it started with noble ideals, but it had become a corporate calcified publication run by kind of terrible people, not the editors. The editors were great, but, you know, the, the corporate brass that was in charge of it you know, um, you know, how can we make it a better, a better institution that kind of speaks to the values of this generation, as opposed to kind of just mimicking these baby boomer institutions that we kind of come up on. And what about this time in the evolution of media in general, made it feel so important to start a publication focused on local stories specifically? We were kind of exhausted of all these kind of people being imported in from out of town and you still see it's still a trend in LA. It's like, you know, if you haven't lived in New York and been an editor in New York, you kind of don't have the pedigree to necessarily be an editor in LA, which, you know, sometimes there's amazing editors. I mean, my editor at Los Angeles Magazine, Mayor Rashawn's fantastic. And, you know, he was a New York editor that hadn't lived in LA for very long, but 
often, you know, when, I mean, and I would imagine, like, I can't even imagine being an editor in another city. I just don't know it that well. You know, how could you, how could you, I couldn't mm. imagine being a regional writer in another city. And for whatever reason, people have a really provincial, they, they take a provincial attitude towards LA. Like it's the boonies. Like I can just come in and drop down and give my little two cents and it's expect, you know, it's accepted as word of law, but we wanted to do something that was, I hate the word authentic because it's been so overused, but but like to a degree authentic, I've always thought of LA as it's it's a real block by block city. And like, of course, New York is like that too, but like LA is specifically a block by block city in the sense it's like, you know, even in like a place like South Central or South LA is, you know, it's called now, you know, like you go the wrong block, it becomes a different gang. You can't wear, you know, this color. It's like, it's a whole like archipelago of, you know, different things. You know, there's so many different cultural ethnicities in LA, you know, and just no one was really telling their stories. And we wanted to be the kind of place that would not just focus on people of power and not just focus on the cliches of Hollywood, but kind of tell the stories of the real people of Los Angeles, like in their daily life. And, you know, as well as somebody like a Mike Davis, who's this brilliant thinker, or a Roy Choi, who's obviously this famous chef, but really represents kind of the soul of the city in its own way. And every one of the land stories, we really wanted to kind of have an intersection where it wasn't just this person is doing something significant. So, for instance, in our first issue, there's this incredible Morisco's truck in Highland Park, but their son, is this amazing narco corrido singer. And we want to tell the story of this family running this truck. They come from Sinaloa, you know, where El Chapo was from, but also tell the story of, of his music career and the truck and the family immigrating to Los Angeles. And it was told by Javier Cabral, who's now the editor of LA Taco, who grew up in East LA. And he's like a punk kid who used to write for the LA Weekly. So it's like stuff like that, that kind of like would embody the spirit of what we were trying to do. Does it ever feel in Los Angeles, like you talk about how, often the editors who are getting hired are from New York. Does it ever feel like the result of that is that the stories that get highlighted package the city in a certain way and overlook other things? A hundred percent. It's a glaring thing. If I could say anything to anybody, I mean, there's not that many publications left, but you know, I love, like, I love the LA Times. I still have a print subscription. Like I, 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 my, my only dream for the LA Times is to hire more like writers that grew up in Los Angeles and like, you know, of course, writers of color that grew up in Los Angeles, but, but all people that really grew up in Los Angeles, because you know, the city in a way where it's like, it, it's in your bone marrow. Like, you know, there are things that you, you just know, like it's instinctive. Like for instance, I'll get to give you an example the rap music that comes from LA. There's like a certain thing to the rhythm of the city that your brain just evolves. We're like, oh, I get this. I like this. Where, you know, if you're not from there, you just don't quite get the food. For instance, like Roy Choi's taco, right? Is like great taco, right? But why do I like love it? Why is it one of my favorite tacos I've ever had? Because, you know, one of my best friends was Korean growing up and we would always go to like Korean barbecue. And of course, if you're in LA, like taco is like, it's like the pizza in New York. It's everything. So mm-hmm. it's just like this clash of cultures. And it's like, those are just some things that you know you can understand as an outsider if you live here long enough, but it's innate. And I think that's so valuable. I mean, our goal for magazines is to try to fill in the gaps, you know, hire the people that know that come from this place. And like, for instance, we have No Can Do as a columnist, uh, uh, All City Jimmy, he goes by now, he used to be called No Can Do. He's a, and he's a rapper and he, he you know, he used to write for the LA Weekly. And, but he, yeah, I used to host a podcast with him called Shots Fire and he's, He's a brilliant rapper, brilliant person. And like, you know, for instance, his story in the latest issue is about, he knew this, the boss of when he used to do trimming in, in up north in Humboldt County, the Emerald Triangle. And his boss is, was from LA and it was mostly a, a black camp of trimmers and growers in Humboldt, which was a total rarity at the time. And the story that he wrote is all about the racism they encountered in Humboldt County, being all these people from Los Angeles. But it's also 
a story about the dispensary uh, that his former boss opened up and his wife that works there, his mother works there. His mother was from Jamaica. He grew up in Los Angeles. And it's sort of these things that like, if No Can Do or All City Jimmy hadn't grown up in South Central and known all these people, he never would have, how would he have known that? You know, you're building out these communities and networks of like people that are from the area and there, it, it just builds on itself. And it's so much easier than like just importing somebody from New York and being like, we'll figure it out. Cause I don't know, put me in even the Bay area, you know, that would take a decade to learn. There's just certain cultural things that, that you know, get lost in translation. Totally. It's interesting speaking to you too, because you're LA natives. I'm a New York native. I often felt almost like a minority in the media scene. There weren't many other New York natives around and the culture that ended up being kind of reflected in the stories people were writing at publications where I worked. It wasn't always like the New York culture that I understood to be New York. It was kind of this transplant, like hipster sensibility. Yeah, that sounds about right. To your point, when you talk about, you know, these outside writers kind of coming in and real like kind of born and raised journalism declining it's not just neighborhoods or spaces that are getting gentrified but you see this the actual narrative of the city and the conversations that we are having about it as a civic community are also getting gentrified and I think that's the real concern when you're losing these publications or when your staff is only recent transplants and I don't mean to like knock people that aren't from LA who live in LA you know I think I consider some people who are not born and raised here to actually be some of the truest Angelinas I know. And this probably goes for New York as well. I think, I think that people who are not from here are also like what give LA its identity for sure. But this is a complex city. It's a horizontal city as opposed to a vertical city, if that makes sense in terms of its flow and its community. And you're losing a lot in how its story is told. 100%. And like, look, like, obviously the land, you know, we have a column from Henry Rollins, who had had a column at the LA Weekly. Henry Rollins didn't grow up, I don't think he grew up right outside of DC, but Henry Rollins is like LA royalty at this point. So it's like, it's completely reductive and silly to kind of say that you can't be, you know, Henry Rollins has contributed to LA culture as much as anybody ever. The point being is that Henry Rollins contributed to LA culture, he embodied the spirit of LA, you know, and like, but like, at the end of the day, like, you know, I, I love Black Flag. They're incredible. You know, like I'll always be a Minuteman guy if I'm going to pick one of those bands of that era because mm-hmm. Pedro, you know, Pedro. Mm-hmm. And um, as I like mispronounce San Pedro, but, um, you know, that's a perfect example, right? Where it's like, you know, it's like it, it should be San Pedro, but it's San Pedro. It's like just weird things like L.A. It's like Los Feliz. It's like that's not the proper way to pronounce it. And, and it just became the proper way to pronounce the word. Just like weird little L.A. things that like you can only know if, if you've been here long enough. Right, right. It's funny. Yeah, my neighborhood Los Feliz, I can tell immediately like how long someone has lived here, depending on how they pronounce it. If they say Los Feliz or Los Feliz. I immediately thought that the latter way of pronouncing it was the correct one. Like when I first came to Los Angeles, but then I heard everyone saying uh, Los Feliz and I was like, oh, okay. I don't know what I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm completely lost here. Well, first, first of all, Los Feliz is, is it's not a, if you want to say Los Feliz, it's not, it's also not grammatically correct in Spanish. It would be Los Felices <laughs> if it was. People will often say to me, you know, like, wait, but you grew up here. Like, why are you pronouncing it that way? And I'm like, well, you don't call it Los Angeles, do you? Mm-hmm. You know, 
So it, it's a very like nuanced, local within local sort of understanding. This is kind of a ripe time for launching independent journalism projects. Jeff, what are the challenges for you? You've been doing independent journalism for a long time. And like, what are the plus sides? Plus sides? <laughs> no plus mm-hmm. sides. Um, okay, well, first of all, it's not easy and it's hard and it's everything you could ever imagine. Like from not having any money and not being able to pay writers what you want to being completely understaffed. And like, you know, I shouldn't mention this. I would scream it. My co-editor, Jen Swan, my, the creative director, Evan Solano, are like the main reason why this publication exists. They're both brilliant. Jen's one of the best editors I've ever worked with in my life and is a great writer and reporter, former LA Weekly person. Evan is like a genius. I called him on Twitter, the like Ralph Steadman of the land. I mean, without his creative vision, we'd be absolutely nothing. The one thing when people read it, they're like, it looks so good. Like, this looks really cool. Part of it is the design and beauty. All of us have edited long form stories that just go online only. And it's it's such a great tragedy. I don't think they get read the same way versus like a print story where someone will sit down and read it and you read an old Rolling Stone or Playboy and you're like, wait, the Playboy interview is 25,000 words, <laughs> you know, like, and you're like, yeah. Hunter Thompson got how many words to write about the death of Ruben Salazar? And I'd love to like be able to publish like stuff like that. I want to hopefully get the next generation to help them write things that exist. And I- I'd love to be able to build it. I mean, we just need like sponsors and money and we don't have any investors and we did this hundred percent ourselves. There's no, no investor. There's no venture capital. No one's like spending their trust fund money on this magazine. It's literally just like three people, like, you know, in an apartment that may or may not contain a chicken, you know, like. When I hear you guys talk about this, I'm reminded of just how this kind of general trend in media over the past 10 12, 13 years with kind of the rise of social media, this feeling that the structural mechanisms with which media is distributed encourage a delocalization. They're not like about local particularity and idiosyncrasy. It's all about making, you know, every article as accessible to the public or national as possible, you know, and that's what I I feel Mm -hmm. a lot in New York City. Like, I spent about 10 years working on staff at like music publications and culture publications in New York City. And there was definitely this feeling over time, like I was being increasingly discouraged from doing anything that wouldn't have national resonance or was too, too local. You're 100% right about the delocalization. It's always infuriated me. It's, it's been one of the most frustrating things about my entire career. It's why I wanted to write for LA Weekly for so long, because I wanted to be able to write things that like, I don't know, I wanted to write about Sublime and be like, I'm not talking to you people that don't understand Sublime. Like, it's not like, for mm-hmm. it's not for you if you don't like, great, you don't like the doors, like, okay, like, sorry, like, it, like it's going to make sense to you. It's not mm-hmm. going to make sense to you. And that's okay. And that's a very New York sensibility too, where it's like, if we don't get it, then it must be stupid. And you're like, no, if you don't get it, maybe you just don't get it. Like, maybe it's just a regional thing. Like, and that's the mm-hmm. case of how everything has, you know, and that's the problem with New York. Oh, look, New York is a great city. It's a wonderful city. It's filled with tons of brilliant people. It's responsible for a majority of the best culture that America's ever produced, but it's never been monolithic. It's never been the end all be all. And it's always been like a lie that New York wants to sell. 
But like, it's really a trend that I would say dovetails across all facets of existence in, in American life in 2020, where it's like, everything has to appeal to everybody. And that's the opposite of how art should exist. And like, I, you know, I'm lumping cultural journalism to art, because ideally, it aspires towards that. The recipe for making something bad is to be try to be everything to everybody. Talk about mm-hmm. the pros of the land, right? I'll give you an example. It's like my story about uh, Rucci that was in the first issue, right? Rucci is a, a rapper from the north side of Inglewood. Uh, he is, uh, is neighborhood Piru affiliated. Uh, his father was was a legendary figure in it. Ended up getting deported to El Salvador, which is where he, his father was actually born and came to America when he was super young. Never lived in El Salvador as an you know as a sentient being basically. But you know during the Trump administration. They deported him and he moved, you know, he grew up in North Inglewood, Rucci, and it's a story of his family and his father and this, this gang. And bottom line is I was able to write a 5,000 word piece on Rucci. There is no publication mm-hmm. on earth that would have let me write a 5,000 word public thing on him. And it's, and it, and it's like, a, I'm talking about Rogers Park, Park where his, you know, the, 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 the his, his set really congregated. It's talking about the house where he grew up. It's talking about that neighborhood. It's talking about North Inglewood. It's, it's really like a story of the city, you know, and, 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 and like, you know, an immigrant story, the Trump administration deporting him, all these different swirling narratives kind of coming together, right? And like, no one would have assigned mm-hmm. that piece to me. No one would have let me write that. I think it's really cool to start a publication like The Land that is not operating as much according to that logic and is focused more on community support and catering to the locals. I love that ability to have a publication and I love being able to sign those pieces, you know, to like the, the more local, the better, like, fuck it. We will triple down on the localness of it. Uh, for instance, like I, I had an Uber ride the other night and there was just some dude that was just like telling me all these like crazy weird stories of like seeing like DJ AM's and Vanessa split and he was passing out flyers for insomniac and like he was drug dealing at the time and how he Mm-hmm. And it was like, the whole thing was like how the cops won't protect you, right? That was the whole like long story of it. And I was like, man, I wish I had a copy of this news of my magazine in the car because this fool would love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he would get it. And that's the, that's been the, I mean, that's been the most beautiful thing about this magazine. You know, it's like, I, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan. And one of the greatest quotes ever was like Jerry Garcia being like, he's like, you know, not everyone likes licorice, but the people who like licorice really like licorice. <laughs> and like, to me that's always something that i've like aspired to have throughout my career it's like you know cult classic not bestseller you know look i understand the necessity of poptimism in like whatever aspect of society not just music but like poptimism is an important thing to remember like pop music can be great like prince is one of the best musicians to ever live madonna whoever you know these great musicians pure pop right but like at the same time like I don't know, like poptimism is kind of toxic too, because when it becomes, it's popular, therefore it's good, then you're very mm-hmm. slow. And that's what we had. And, that, and that's a very millennial thing I think about. If it's popular, it's good. If it appeals to the masses, it must be good. And when has that ever really been true? Granted, sometimes in rap music, a lot of the time that is true. Uh, you know, sometimes the best rapper is the most popular rapper, but not always. You know, literature, it's certainly not the case. F. Scott Fitzgerald was ignored when he died. It's always been like that artist, you know, whether it's like a Vincent Van Gogh or whomever. It's just how it works. And I hope now, like now that we're seeing kind of, if for better or worse, like the delusions of the masses, you know, like, I mean, 30% of this country probably believes in QAnon now. <laughs> like, like I'm not willing to trust mm-hmm. their taste in, in anything. <laughs> like, so it's just, you know, um, hopefully we can get back to that. Not, not to be an elitist asshole. I hope we can like learn from it and kind of realize that, yeah, some popular things are good. Some popular things are bad, but. The thing that I find 
confusing about poptimism is not knowing, understanding what is motivating it. And if it is motivated by like, you know, a genuine desire to sort of break down boundaries and like, or like, you know, kind of dismantle the like old, like white male music writer sensibility that is like an elitism, or if it is actually just kind of like partly motivated just by like the internet and the, the need to survive on the internet, the need to have taste that happens to get you commissioned to write think pieces totally. about pop yeah. stars or you whatever. Used to do alternative zo- altered zones, right? Yeah, that was how I started. I loved altered zones; it was great, and that it was a very similar to POW. You know, the the blog I run, where it's like, mm. I don't know, we don't give a mm-hmm. fuck. Like, if it's it's like even the most like you'd have three hundred SoundCloud listens or YouTube plays or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, if it's good, it's good, but that can't survive on the internet now. And like, I thought altered zones is one of the coolest things actually. Uh, that like Pitchfork did ever, you know, it's like sick that they like underwrote like this cool, like weird little like blog, you know, and maybe have the chance to expose it to the masses. Yeah. And like, you can't survive now. I think it's greatly social media's fault. Yeah. It's insane. I'll just say the post Malone piece that I wrote, I have a new piece coming out like next week, which I won't like cannibalize, but basically one of the, ins- well, it'll probably be out. It's like on Vanilla Ice. Um, and uh, it's a 30 year Vanilla Ice is to the <laughs> And that yeah, that's like most people don't remember. It's like actually one of the most popular selling rap albums ever. It's like top ten most popular rap albums ever. It's not a great album or anything. It's it's fine. Like Vanilla Ice is basically G Easy, right? Like, at the end of the day, like he's connected to the culture. He's he's he he acknowledges that it's he's a white person, a black person's art form. He kind of talks, you know, like he says the right things, and like he's ultimately harmless. And like he's made a couple good songs here and there. Like nothing against G Easy, right? Vanilla Ice is basically the same. But now we have a figure like Post Malone. Who I think is actively a bad figure. Like I think he actively appropriates, wants to have it both ways. It's like I'm not hip hop. Don't listen to hip hop if if you want to cry. Like all, he says all these horrible things about hip hop. It's clear he doesn't give a fuck. I'm sure he like likes rap songs, but it's clear he has no connection to the culture. He doesn't care. Like he, he's probably you know what I mean. He says kind of like wild conspiracy theories, and I, quite frankly, I think his music is terrible. Right, and I wrote this huge hopefully funny hit piece in the washington post i got death threats and the washington post has, mm. has a department now that investigates death threats so like that's scary <laughs> you know and that's that's it's for me it, and like we live in this culture where now because post malone and there were things and you know and it's not just these like lunatic fans there were multiple think pieces written about my post malone review and like a couple of them were mm. like how dare he say these things like he's so unfair and i'm like or people were accusing me of taking a cheap shot. You know, there are a ton of white people in America that want to see a white person mimicking black art. And that to me was what Post Malone was in a way that like even maybe Vanilla Ice wasn't. And it's just wild that we're in this reverse situation where when Vanilla Ice did it, he was pilloried, just eviscerated, lost his everything, right? And he was 23 years old, right? Now, if Post Malone, if one person dares rock the boat on Post Malone, then like, the critic is the bad guy. And we live in this weird alternate reality where like that is the case now. And like, again, if you like Post Malone, cool. Like whatever, like, I don't care. If you like Taylor Swift, cool. Like that's great. Like I I want people to like whatever they want if it makes you happy in this day and age. But we're just like, should be able to write something negative about somebody like and not have to worry about like them like sitting your throat. I, I have a question for all of us, I guess as critics, which is, why do people get so angry when someone writes a negative review about an artist they care about? 
that's not something that I can really relate to as a music fan. You know, it's because it's just presenting another way of thinking about it. And it's just contextualizing that music in a different way that doesn't have any impact on, you know, on me or my relationship with the music. Um, I feel like the only part of me that, that can sort of understand that was like when I like stand artists super hard when I was like 13. Why do people get so mad and take these so personally rather than just why do they see a negative review as an or rather than an and? I would say there's a, a couple of things. I so, right, I think a, you know, not to go on medium is the message, but uh, Twitter, like for instance, right. If I tweeted Taylor Swift sucks, that's all I tweet. Like I probably should get dunked on. Right. Because it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, what are you trying to ruin someone's day? Like, do you, are you such a narcissist that you need to have like every opinion of your own validated? But, like, so, like, right, you, you dunk on me, right? If I said something so stupid and self, you know what I mean? Like, who cares? Like, it's just you're bringing more negativity to the world. Conversely, if someone wrote a really thoughtful 3,000-word essay interrogating their own personal feelings and biases about why they didn't like Taylor Swift, which is, I think, actually the way to do it, if you're going to write something negative, I don't think you should just be tweeting slander on the internet that much unless it's really, mm-hmm. unless it's really funny or something. If you can get a great joke off, that's a different story, whatever. But... Then I think that's that. I think that the, maybe the maybe the criticism is valid. Um, the other thing I would add to it is regional bias. A lot of the time in rap, especially, there is a certain regional bias, and I've actually seen it with New York and indie rock, where it's like the LA bands that I thought were great never really got the attention they deserve. And I think maybe this is okay, and maybe it's the problem is that there aren't enough regional publications, but that's okay to like music sounds differently in other places. I don't know why more people don't acknowledge that. Like Dame mm-hmm. Funk, right? Like I'm not like Dame Funk is to me amazing. One of the best artists of the last 15 years, right? But like that music is so LA. Like I've tried bumping Dame Funk in the East Coast, and like it sounds cool. He's still a great musician, but like I don't want to hear it. You know what I mean? I want to hear Rock Marciano or something when it's like ice cold. But conversely, when I'm in LA, it's 100 degrees. I don't want to listen to Rock Marciano. I want to listen to Dame Funk if I'm driving on the freeway and that sort of thing. So we forget all these things or maybe we don't realize them and it leads to kind of regional and geographic bias against artists. I want to jump in and make the observation that you've talked a lot about how you can kind of hear the city in the art that comes out of it. And as a New Yorker, I sometimes feel like there's something distinctly Los Angeles about the style of writing that you've cultivated and a lot of the writing that you feature a lot of the pieces you do are long form and this kind of like focus on the cultural juxtapositions that you experience when you're driving through Los Angeles or from street to street and this strong imagery. Is that like a conscious thing on your part or is it a reaction against where like the New York voice or where culture journalism is going in general well thanks actually it's a wonderful compliment and like it was something i only realized after the fact i think and i think it's just because i've never lived anywhere else i went to college in la i went to occidental and like it is fundamentally like a part of your being and to me i've always admired like a lot of art that uh has a regional sense of place whether it's hip-hop or literature and you know that that goes for a lot of new york art it's like i always think about the doors versus the velvet underground right two bands that i love right and like, I'm not even saying one's better than the other. Like they're both great for completely different ways, but it's like, 
Velvet Underground fans usually don't like the Doors, or at least didn't. You know, maybe now it's different. And Doors fans maybe didn't get the Velvet Underground, or maybe they did, and like they were like, yeah, they're cool too. But like, I love you know, I, nothing compares to listening to LA Woman like on PCH or something. And like a New Yorker's kind of like, stupid cliche. You know what I mean? Like, it, it just is like, I think more people should like cultivate a sense of place. And you know, there's also like, there's plenty of brilliant rootless writers. You know, it, but like even the Southern writers that I like, like I mean, I love William Faulkner. You know, he's he's incredible. Like, mm-hmm. you know so much of it is just like him being rooted in like this like small little made-up town in mississippi and those mm-hmm. are, you know new orleans like stuff from new orleans to me is like the best because it's like mu- i mean music from new orleans is like incredible but you know even some of the like, literature and it's just having that sense of place i feel is like it what makes an artist themselves and not to say i am but like just you make any kind of person who they are and like that's you know i feel like there's the people that grew up in la like you know i was saying this uber driver where i was like talking to my friend we were in the car and like we we're coming home from dinner and like even the place we went to dinner was like you know dan tana's restaurant which is like it's just a weird psychedelic new yorkers like european yeah in LA. like that to me is like it's almost like psychedelic and i guess that's the thing is like i feel like la is like almost like a psychedelic place by nature because of the colors perhaps mm-hmm. you know it's like everything is like bright and you know, even our, our creative director, like the mag, this issue of the magazine is like so bright and colorful. And that's just an L.A. thing. Have you guys read that book, How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell? Uh-huh. No. It's really good. Um, it's by this woman who is an artist. And she wrote this book asking the existential question of like, you know, how do you escape Internet brain, essentially, and like find peace? And sh- her mm. argument specifically about like how she found a sense of meaning purpose when she was feeling really burned out was paying attention to the the I can't remember what term she uses but the hyper local and she found inspiration by you know learning about the local birds like listening to bird sounds like thinking about the historicity of your street your neighborhood like learning as much about where you are as a way of expressing dissent for the internet brain uh, <laughs> lifestyle. And so that kind of resonates with what she wrote. Yeah. I mean, I mean, one of the reasons why I love rap so much is because it's like, it's to me the most regional of all art forms. And uh, you know, in LA, it's like, I mean, which part of LA are you talking about? You know, it's because every, you know, there's so, I mean, LA is like, I mean, there's hundreds of gangs in LA and like each gang has their own, like, you know, standard bearer in a way, you know, it's like what makes O3 Greedo's music so special is it's not just O3 Greedo, it's Watts, it's the Jordan Down projects. It's, it's also the fact that Greedo did grow up all over America. You know, his sound is both a region, you know, it's both a Southern sound mixed with, you know, Watts, but also to know Watts is to know that most of the people from Watts originally came from Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, you know, Alabama um with the south and like the, it mixed with LA culture and you know there's a lot of Mexican people in Watts and there, there's that too and it's like Nipsey Hustle same thing I mean Nipsey such an amalgam of like different LA cultures but also you know his, his father was from Africa and you know LA has a large community of people that came from Africa I think his father was from Eritrea I mean obviously Eritrea is not Ethiopia but they're near each other and there's a big strip on Fairfax it's just like all these different little things that you you might not realize if you're from out of town and that's what's so cool i love like you know it's that's what like i mean that's why i loved uh anthony bourdain show so much because mm. it was just like it showed the hyper it was like one of the things where you're like well actually you think everything is sterile and homogenous but 
there still are these pockets of local culture and it's up to you to find them. So Jeff, you've spent quite a long time covering the trial and legal situation surrounding the rapper, the LA rapper, Draco the Ruler. Um, And you also have a story coming out soon in The Ringer about that. He, Draco is currently on trial for criminal gang conspiracy and shooting from a motor vehicle um, after previously being found not guilty in a murder case. And earlier this week, Jeff, you tweeted, uh, quote, the district attorney accused me today in open court of being the mastermind behind all of Draco's press which they're terrified about because they don't want people to know the truth. I love my fans. Uh, So so what was going on there? They basically are terrified. Draco has a gag order. He had a gag order placed on him when he was about to start his second trial, right? Uh, Which was supposed to happen right before the coronavirus kind of shut everything down. And basically then the judge reinstituted a gag order recently and uh, they have another hearing next Thursday that I'm going to be going to. And it's about, Basically, they're, they're, they're trying to silence Draco any way they can. They're, they're desperate to not uh, have, you know, Draco's now been not just in my press, but, uh, you know, he's, he's been covered in The Atlantic. He's been covered in GQ. He's been covered in NPR. He's, uh, you name it. And, you know, Draco is a rapper I first met in 2017, actually back when I was at the LA Weekly. Uh, I met him for the first, when he was in jail for the first time for gun charges connected to the murder that he beat two years later. And it's all, it's all one case, right? He's a very popular rapper in South Central and Watson Compton, but outside of South LA, no one knew who he was. And I was the first person I think that had ever written about him. And the first, definitely the first person to ever interview him. And, you know, I met him in, in, in jail in that men's central jail. And uh, I had to memorize what he told me and like frantically put it on notes because you can't bring in a tape recorder to jail. You can't certainly can't bring in a camera. Yeah. So basically I covered his first trial, um, which we can get into more, you know, but to, to answer the question, they basically are engaged in the campaign to silence him. Uh, they're also desperate to try him before Jackie Lacey leaves office or hopefully leaves office in November because she's she's up for re-election against uh, George Gascon, the former San Francisco district attorney. And they're terrified that George Gascon will win and drop these charges because basically the charges that now stand are absurd. I can't even begin to tell you how insane they are. Like Draco did beat all these charges and the two charges that hung on him, as you mentioned, the conspiracy charge and the motor vehicle charge, the jury voted in his favor. One was 10 to two, one was seven, five. So they weren't even like close calls necessarily, you know, but they are retrying it because they're embarrassed. They're terrified. They, they hate him. They hate me. I, you know, wrote a big story about them for the fader that they did not like. And I had another one for genius and I've had various other pieces and my tweets as well. And they're really desperate to kind of destroy him. What's their motivation or incentive here? You know, I had the Moby Dick epigraph in my first story, but it's like, why did Captain Ahab want to get the white whale? Like it becomes a certain obsession that it becomes like a lens to kind of try to overcome all these deep psychological flaws and, you know, the pathetic nature of these cops and these DAs that are like, think that they're tough and macho and they got embarrassed. And then here's Draco, who's the epitome of everything they hate. He's young, he's self-made, he's rich, he's a black person. He didn't actually join a gang, even though he grew up in this neighborhood where a lot of his friends were in gangs, and that's what's ensnared him. And it's really a situation, I think, that kind of captures all the criminal justice failings of contemporary Los Angeles. 
how much of his role as a public facing figure and also the subsequent attention that you're reporting on him has drummed up. Uh, do, do you feel that that has played any kind of role in the way that they have kind of doubled down on trying to peg him for something? Definitely. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because at the same time, like there had to be attention on it because this is such a flagrant miscarriage of justice. Conversely, if he had gotten acquitted and I would never written an article about it, they wouldn't have refiled. I have no doubt in my mind. I mean, they had egg on their face, like to use a terrible cliche. Like, they, I mean, it was embarrassing. I mean, I said that like the lead detective like looked like he ate serpent's eggs for breakfast. Like, I mean, and like, honestly, I, I feel no regret for it. Like, I'm a big fight fire with fire type person. Like, I, I see this in politics where, yeah, like, I mean, sometimes maybe you should take the high road. Like, I, that's true. Sometimes, like, taking the high road only, like, leads you to get manipulated and exploited and bad faith arguments get weaponized against you. And I think in this instance, it was like, no, I'm not going to let them destroy who I believe to be innocent. And a jury of his peers found him to be innocent of these murder charges. Justice is going to be served. Like, there was a murder. It was a gang murder. Both of these men are going to go to jail for the rest of their lives. And it's really a tragic thing on all sides. One of the shooters was 17 years old. One, the, the other shooter was like Draco's childhood best friend. It's really sad that, you know, the person who died didn't deserve to die for that. It's, it's just all sad. But Draco didn't have anything to do with it. Everyone knows Draco didn't have anything to do with it. He just happened to be, he was in the driver's seat of a parked car and somebody shot out the back. And it was a guy that they can't mention in court, but it was a guy that Dra the guy who was murdered the guy Draco knew. They didn't have a beef with him. Like he, the guy had a beef with like the other people, and it was a known thing that came out in court. There's really no reason to do it other than to show who's boss. And it's like why these police unions are coming back. You know, it's some like Empire Strikes Back shit. Like they want to show they're in charge. You are the peasants. We control you, and that's what they're trying to do with Draco. You're a young black man with money. We'll show you your place. And it's fucked up and it's fundamentally mm. racist. And I think there's a lot of problems with journalism where even the language that you use to talk about it, you know, we're, we're constrained by the strictures of false objectivity. I want everything to be honest and true. And sometimes, sometimes the truth is saying the guy looks like he eats serpent eggs. Like, I, I don't know how to describe it otherwise. I'm not going to pick some stupid attitude <laughs> to be like, oh, he's gaunt or he's, he's mean. You know what I mean? It's like, I see it now. Like editors will be like, well, you can't project that thing about them. I'm like, well, have you ever read like Hunter Thompson? Like Tom Wolf or whoever, like Tom Wolf was writing pieces like thousands of words where it's like getting inside someone's head. We are so conservative with a lowercase c in journalism now. And it makes me so, so upset. No one wants to take a risk. No one wants to take a chance. And I want like my writers, you know, obviously myself as a writer, I'm like, I want to go off on my own like chimerical flights of fancy, but I want my writers to do the same too. I want them to have fun. I want them to be free. I want this to be fun writing. Even if you're not writing about a fun subject, I want to get to the truth of it. And with the loss of all weeklies, with like whatever Vice is now, it's not what Vice was. And But the one good thing I will say about early Vice is like, they didn't give a fuck. And now we're like so concerned with every little thing. Like no one is allowed to like write why does everyone have to write so straight now? I don't understand that. And the Draco case, I didn't, I certainly didn't write it straight. And that really rankled some feathers. Cause you know, they were used to this, like, you know, LA times has a bunch of great reporters, but it's not the place where you look for, for like, you know, these stylistic flourishes or like these long form pieces that really go on the attack. You can't do that at the times. And I don't think you should be able to do that at the times. Probably it's like, maybe not the place for it. Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, I'd like to see both there, but I got them like that. And they're, they're terrified. And then they see the Atlantic covering it. They see GQ covering it. They're like, oh, shit, We're, our, our card's about to be pulled. Mm. The interesting thing to understand is that the concept of quote-unquote traditional objectivity versus taking a perspective that perhaps has a little bit more of a stand to it is that 
the inclination to want to be like safe or objective doesn't seem to me to be often motivated by that being for the good of the story, but rather keeping publications safe and keeping advertisers content. A big part of it. And I think, you know, the really critical thing to be looking at when you're talking about this sort of war of like the soul of journalism that's happening right now is to understand what that's being motivated by and that it's not necessarily coming from the place where it's for the good of the story. I think you're 100% right. You know, the thing going back to the thing where we're talking about the people are not always right. It's like we've also gone into this world of journalism where everything can be clickbait. But, you know, you can see the clicks on everything. Just because the story goes viral doesn't mean it's good. And just because it doesn't go viral doesn't mean it's bad. I mean, often a good story does go viral and often a bad story doesn't. But it's not a universal rule. And that's been one of the worst things that happened to journalism. Beyond the fact that it's like, oh, you have X number of Twitter followers, so I'll hire you to do a story. And if you have these Twitter followers, you must be good at writing, which is not the case. Like some of the best writers don't even have a Twitter account or have like 10 followers, you know, not 10, but like a thousand followers or something, you know, 2000 followers. It's not like that. And, but I think you're totally right about the advertisers too. I mean, look at what journalism has become and through no fault necessarily of journalism. Who's going to want to do spawn con when like, you know, you're viciously attacking the police it's not safe enough for them. And which to me is insane because I'm like, our culture is burning. <laughs> like The country is burning. We're in the apocalypse. Maybe like now is the time to take the gloves off. Right. And I think there's also something to be said for, you know, you just use the word attack. I think there's a real conflation between something being an attack versus being critical of something. Cause the latter is, hugely important to like the very essence of what good journalism is and and i think that gets written off now too much as being an attack or being an an opinion i'd argue if your attack is honest your attack is honest to me it's like all about honesty sometimes people need to be attacked and it goes deeper than a critic criticism like in the draco story i did I, i was in trial every day i saw these people are doing i saw what they were counting on they were counting on me not being there that fucked them up. Like they were planning on like the, having their little like show and tell and Draco's life. And there are, and like the point of the Draco thing really to me is there are so many thousands of people getting railroaded by the criminal justice system every single day. 99.99% of them are not rappers. He happened to be the wrong one. They tried it to, and not to give myself credit, but like nobody wanted me to be there. Like it's not like any of these publications gave a fuck about me. Sure. Some of my editors did, but certainly not the top, no one behind it. It was like me being like obsessive and dogged and being like, fuck it. I, I have to do it. It's like, I don't want to go to court next Thursday. Like, I'm going to have to wake up at like 7 a.m. and drive all the way to Compton and like whatever's left in morning traffic. I don't want to do that. But like, I know that this is like, it's it's important to me. It's pursuing some deeper kind of sense of honesty. And we get caught up in that where it's like sometimes to me, air quote, objectivity is not honest. Hmm. And then it's kind of interesting in um, journalism, specifically like, you know, newspaper writing where a lot of major publications like the New York Times will come under attack for using the objective voice as a veil for biases. Come under attack both from the left and from the right. But then there's also this movement of writers who think that it's more honest, as you say, to be kind of transparent about your opinion. Totally. And and I, I think the fault is ultimately like, look, like I think the New York Times should strive towards to be as objective as possible. Like I think the LA Times should strive to be as objective as possible. The problem is that all the places that like we're able to go on the attack or be critical, they're gone. Like I said it earlier, I'm like, it's fine if I'm not like a air quote mainstream writer, whatever the fuck that means. And 
there are all these places that I would have like wanted to have written. I would have wanted to write for Rolling Stone in the seventies. And it's not just because like Hunter Thompson wrote there. It's because they were the place that published Eve's Hollywood too. Like I want to exist in a society where like they can publish a 15,000 word meditation of Eve Babbitt's growing up in Hollywood. Where does she publish that today? Like, you know what I mean? Like who would publish that? And it was so local and the, and Rolling Stone was publishing that. And that to me is what's lost. And that to me is what makes me so sad. It's not like any of these mainstream publications is fault. Like they're just being what they exist to be. It's these other publications that, that, that we've lost. And so like the point of the land, you know, to, to bring it, uh, you know, 360 degrees is really to just like be there for that and to have a rigorous reporting, but also weird humor. And like, so like Dan Ozzie can write a piece parodying the New York times, like, you know, or like, <laughs> just that. like, yeah, like, I mean, he's the best. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, just to be fucking weird and like cool and not like be embarrassed about all this shit. Honestly, I'm mad most of my days, to be honest with you. I'm not depressed, you know, sometimes both. And it, I'm mad because like, we like, I wish that there was a land in every city and I don't blame anyone for not doing it. But like, that's the point. And like, I do see signs of life starting, you know, I think what Defector Media did is incredible. I Brickhouse Media, it's awesome. There are versions of that, but I want to see us build like an, a no, I, I mean, that would be like my dream for like, there'd be like a, a version of the land in every city. And not, I don't want to be the person that owns it. Yeah, to, to what you were saying, Jeff, I think that's sort of where the divide is right now. And I think that's sort of this existential moment that we're seeing right now with independent journalism. Instead of it being focused on ownership, you're seeing a lot of collective action and collectives and unions form, which is really like unprecedented for us. Which brings us to the advice question that Emily had for this episode. Yeah, I mean, I have myself been involved in several like independent publishing ventures both online and print and it's hard just kind of making it work from a financial perspective and just like a time perspective sometimes how do you stay committed even when the going gets rough uh meditation therapy yoga <laughs> like uh it's funny like so many times when we have these advice questions at the end of our episodes, I feel like everyone has responded with therapy, like no matter what the question is. <laughs> I don't find it like that helpful in terms of like figuring anything out, but it feels like going into a sauna, if that makes any sense, you know, where it's like, okay, the toxins have been sweated out now. Like I'll be good for three more days, you know? Um, I think therapy made me a better writer, personally. That's a story for another time. I'm hoping, yeah. Like I like I saw like a lot of my favorite writers went to therapy. I was like, all right, fine, you can you can I mean I don't I don't go as much as I should, but like it's it, it's great. If you can get a good therapist, there's nothing more valuable. But I mean meditation too is honestly like the best thing I've ever done and, and like I try to like do yoga or work out or something to stay sane. Otherwise the internet drives me nuts like every other day. And on a professional level, I suppose it's like again, like in terms of the land, I'm really lucky that I have really cool people that I work with like Jen and Evan are awesome and you know not to say we were like everything is always kumbaya or anything but like they're both like smart and rational and super hardworking. and we've actually started working with a person like in terms of helping us like organize uh, Veronica Polcini and, and she's been really valuable over the last month like keeping our focus on things and I mean at the end of the day it's like hard and like I think like to do anything in life you really have to sacrifice sadly there's not really a magic bullet and it's just a lot of like long nights and and a lot of like not doing things that would be, I mean, not like you can do anything fun now in quarantine anyways, but if it, if it was over, you know, so many nights where I'm like, it's Friday and Saturday night, I'm editing a story for the land. What's essential to making something like this, publishing an independent magazine with a 
bunch of other people who are also having to like manage their lives and other jobs. What's the one essential thing that makes it work that's necessary to do something like this? I would say like, I'm maybe not the best at doing this, but you have to like attempt to try to remove your ego as much as you can. It's an impossible thing. Like no one's going to successfully remove their ego, but like being willing to lose a battle is a valuable thing. Don't get me wrong. There are plenty of battles that I'll be like, this is it. I have to do this. But like, you also have to be willing to lose a battle, like to work with people and like to make sure that everyone is happy and like make sure that they know that they're appreciated. They're so appreciated. The people I work with, I could never have in a million years. And the writers were so lucky to have a photographer. There's like this groundswell of people that have come forward and been like, yeah, I'm down to help. I'm down to edit. You know, even people that maybe we didn't even work with, but just even the offer of them doing that is so immensely appreciated. Not to get all super corny, it takes a village, but there is a lot of truth to that. I consider myself really lucky that there's like a bunch of people that have been down to kind of help out on this quixotic mission that we're all engaged on. Because at the end of the day, like the whole point of the magazine isn't necessarily for any of us to get rich or any of us to be famous or certainly not that, but it's really like to build something for the city of Los Angeles that hopefully everyone can be proud of. And you can give it to your Uber driver that grew up in like El Monte. And he's like, yeah, (laughs) you know, like some weird shit. You know, not necessarily like Frank Gehry likes it, which would be cool. But I'm like just as interested in, I don't know, giving it to like some random skate kid on like Melrose or something. You know what I mean? Who's like, this is tight. You know, like some weird shit like that. Like that to me is super important too. You have to be motivated by something larger than yourself. It's certainly not money. (laughs) (laughs) I think we we can all relate to that sentiment, I think. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Right. Like it's, I mean, I wish it was money. Like, I mean, it'd be great. Like I wish that there was money for something that I love doing, but it's, you know, one for me, one for them, you know, sometimes you'll still have to like do some kind of ad copy for someone that they want to pay you a lot of money to do. And you're like, fuck it. Like this will subsidize me covering the Draco trial, you know? So we all got to hustle, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's 2020. I mean, the guy's not falling, it's fall in. So we're just, kind of wandering around broken shards, you know, on the ground. This has been a wonderful conversation. Always love speaking with both of you. Jeff Weiss, thank you so much for coming on the show. Props to you guys for doing this. It's You guys are doing an amazing job. Like I, I told you, Andrew, but I'll say it for the public record. I was so impressed when I listened to it. I was like, I cannot believe how professional and prepared, not to say it surprised me because you guys are both really talented, but it was also like, I could never imagine like doing something so professional seeming and awesome and especially right out the gate. So especially, and independently too. So like, congratulations on this endeavor. And I'm, I'm really honored to be one of the first guests on the show. Today's episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our music is composed by Mark Donica. Special thanks to our guest, Jeff Weiss. To check out the latest issue of The Land, as well as Jeff's work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.